0: In fact, Mills, the, the principal investigator, uh, in his email to Steve Kirsch, said, um, I actually think the result is positive, and it showed a 17% reduction in hospitalization. And uh, if we had only randomized a few more patients, um, uh, I believe that it would have come out significant. So this is literally his quote. So, this, is, uh,
1: this is stunning. The principal investigator on this trial, this trial, which has been heralded from the rooftops as suggesting that this drug has no effect the principal investigator believes that the trial showed that it was not effective because they didn't have enough patients that the that they he believes they saw an effect yep right and that if they had randomized more patients that that effect would have been such that the conclusion would have been different that is an amazing thing to be true coming from the primary author on a paper that the Wall Street Journal is telling us says ivermectin doesn't work. Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein and I am sitting today with Alexandros Marinos, who is the CEO of Belena, who has been doing a deep dive on the recent Or recently revealed together trial ivermectin arm we are going to talk through that work today welcome alex hi good to be here uh so i should probably tell the audience um that we have become friends i became aware of you at the point that you showed up in the early days of the dark horse live streams and the dark horse uh, discussions with uh, Robert Malone, Steve Kirsch, uh, Pierre Corey, etc. There was a lot of criticism at the time of the Dark Horse podcast. And you, uh, who I now understand, are a, a member of the rationalist community. Maybe you're a recovering rationalist. I'm not sure. But in any case, you showed up and volunteered to... Uh, build a protocol to see whether or not the Dark Horse podcast was any good at analyzing um, scientific work surrounding COVID and its various potential treatments. I must say that when you emerged to do that work with the project that you called Better Skeptics, I believe you were uh, responding to uh, Heather's suggestion that we need better skeptics in the world. Uh, when you showed up to do that work, I was... um Not happy about it because your method involved scrutinizing transcripts of the Dark Horse podcast. And while we certainly endeavor to say uh, things that are true and to correct any errors, transcripts always make a person seem like an idiot. You know, the way we talk is not the same thing as the way we write. It doesn't have the same level of care and precision. And so uh, I was concerned about you doing that, but um, suffice it to say you did an admirable job. You uh, set up the thing, but you also had referees who were not you, So uh, it was independent. Um, do you want to just quickly say what you found so that uh, we can put that behind us and get to the together trial?
0: Sure, sure. Yeah. So that, um, so, so the, the, the backstory there was that I, um, I was, you know, I, I was a listener of Dark Horse. I had a good uh, impression of Yuri at the time when I saw the two sort of collide, right? saw so I was like, okay, this is interesting now, right? Because what you know try to fact check like what comes out of official sources or whatever, that's a far more fraught situation. Here we have some people who have you know a good track record, um, and they're in, in conflict, and that's that's actually something that's you know uh, worth worth digging into. So we we did that 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 project, and the reason I had some confidence that the transcripts are not as bad as you might immediately think is because I had already I was already challenging people on Twitter to, to t- t- say exactly what the problem was because I was hearing ambient you know the hate was kind of like you know faceless and, and, and hard to sort of pin down so I was like all right like I'm willing to you know I don't know what I believe here in this in this conflict like what can you point me to somewhere? And 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 I had people sort of start pointing me in various directions. Look at this minute, look at that minute. And I'm like, it doesn't say what you think it says. And I literally start, started typing down. It was a Steve Kirsch quote where I thought, okay, if anybody said anything outrageous in the in the Kirsch Malone uh, uh, Dark Horse episode, that would be Kirsch. And I, and I look at it and it's like, no, he actually used three separate qualifiers and he said exactly what he meant to say. And that was a great expression if you – you know, if you bleach it, <laughs> there's nothing left of the quote, but like random words that you put in succession. Sure. But that's not what he said. So then I was like, you know what? I th- I think the transcripts are going to be pretty good. I didn't, I didn't read them closely, um, but I, I think I got a good ear. Like I, I catch when people are saying outrageous things, I I catch it in real time and I'd heard all this stuff. So I was like, I, I, th- I had, I had a background confidence that whatever it was, it wouldn't be something like blatant. Um, and, you know, I mean, what we caught in the end, there was like two or three things that got caught. Um, one was that, um, because we also did, uh, we, we did four podcasts. One of them was your appearance with Pierre Corey on Joe Rogan. Um, and we he mentioned that, um, you know, the WHO is still minimizing airborne transmission. And technically speaking, <laughs> six weeks later, earlier, four weeks, a few weeks earlier, the WHO had reversed its position now you can debate whether you know what minimizing means uh but and and, and honestly like are, are we expecting pierre to be like on the on the daily with like the the wh but it, you know factually it was it was a catch right or there was another one about zimbabwe where he had i believe uh personal sort of contact with with jackie stone over there and he had a his you know he repeated some things that. I could find hints, but I, I I also did not participate in the challenge, so uh, I just let it come through. And it's true that the Zimbabwe situation was not as clear as as maybe Pierre presented it. Um, there was a few of those that we that we caught, but there wasn't uh, there wasn't something that was uh, you know I, I honestly I think <laughs> this is going to sound strange. I, I think if the people who were trying to find claims were were less rabid, were had paid. Like more careful attention. If I was trying to do that, I would probably have found uh, more things. But my sense is that they would be in that range of like normal sort of things. You might say that are a little bit out of date or that you know were like just like broadly justifiable, but maybe not certainly correct. But but the you know, we're talking about four podcasts, right? We're talking about eleven hours of spoken word. Just like put that in context, you, you get one clip of CNN and you find more stuff wrong than we find in, in eleven hours. So uh, that that was shocking to me. I was sure. I was really really expecting a lot
1: more. Yeah, I was expecting more too, just because it is spoken word. It's not something that one has written and then gone through to tighten it up. And so anyway, I was I was very pleased with how it came out, and I was uh, struck by the fact that you were able to uh, do a, a good and what I thought was a fair job, even given a mechanism that I thought was destined to you know flag many, many very minor errors and not be able to calibrate their interpretation. But let's put that behind us for the moment, except to say that what we are going to do today is in some sense you continuing down the same road, which is to take Things that are contentious in public and evaluate what's really there and what its meaning is. And what we're going to do is we're going to look uh, at the TOGETHER trial, which is a very strange scientific phenomenon in the sense that its conclusions were revealed more than half a year ago. The paper that reports on what is going to be called the Ivermectin Arm, or maybe it should be described as the Ivermectin Arms, uh, was only published recently, uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so, in some sense, we've had the conclusion or the supposed conclusion of the, that arm of the trial for half a year, but have not been able to scrutinize the methods, uh, or the reasoning that went into delivering it, which is a very odd and upside down scientific phenomenon. Now, the way we're going to do this is we're going to look at the piece you have just, um, published you have published it on your own substack so this is not something that has gone through any sort of official editorial review nonetheless you have collaborated with many people in generating it you have solicited feedback on it so in in many ways it's as scrutinized as anything that gets published given the number of eyes that have read it and offered critique and the ways in which you have fixed it but nonetheless it's going to be a little bit of an unusual dark horse episode it's going to be challenging for people who are listening audio only you are going to put together a something like a slide deck that will allow people to look at the figures that we are discussing Uh, they can you know scroll through in real time and you and i are going to be scrolling through together um, but not on not on the screen so anyway you will give of uh, signposts that tell people where to be looking in this piece and they can look at it and they can read it for themselves i will provide links to your piece to the original new england journal of medicine publication and presumably other artifacts like the wall street journal uh, article uh, touting the publication etc all right so with that uh, let us get started. Where should we begin? We are we are looking at I your Substack piece, which is titled uh, "The Problem with the Together Trial."
0: Right, um, very vanilla title. Um, but, you know, there was you know, what do you? How do you call this? <laughs> it's a, it's such a big uh, big piece. You don't really want to put the conclusion in the. Uh, in the title, but um, the, yeah, so so I think the, the place to start is to understand what the TOGETHER trial was. I think you can't really make any sense of the conversation until you understand what the TOGETHER trial, especially in the, the TOGETHER trial is ongoing, right? So it, it in a sense it is, but we're talking about a period of, of trials, several sort of parallel uh, kind of studies that we're running and were started in early January, so mid-Jan, let's say, um, and end uh, of 2021, um, you know, around the time of the, you know, inauguration of the current president, et cetera, uh, just to put it in in, in, in context of, uh, you know, what what was happening in the world. And then it and the, the the trial uh, ended, at least the, the part that we're interested in, on August 5th uh, and 6th, yeah, 5th the declared change. And maybe there's a, a little bit of tail in the data, maybe it went up to the 6th. So that period of time is what we're looking at, and in that period of time, I have maybe the first diagram here on the paper is, um, in the in the in the article is maybe uh, useful. Um, adaptive trials basically run multiple arms at the same time, right? It's a it's a it's an elegant idea. What so you I'm gonna do... I'm gonna
1: try to yeah. uh, help translate for people. Sure, sure, sure. sure. Uh, what we're looking at is a composite trial where the same investigators were looking at the effect of different possible treatments for COVID 19 at the same time. They were leveraging a. Basically, if you're testing multiple drugs and they're all to be tested against a placebo, you can get a benefit by generating a single placebo algorithm, right? So you have one. A placebo generating engine effectively and you can compare it to all of these treatments simultaneously rather than having to do an independent one for each right. drug so there's a, a kind of a economies of scale sure. issue here and the arms refer to the different substances or protocols being tested
0: right yes um it, it, you know it's it's you can you can think of it as an efficiency in terms of the, the, the funding you're going to use to to generate results. you can think of it as an efficiency even in kind of human lives right You don't want to put too many people at risk. It, it's a, it's an admirable sort of setup and as I've delved into it I've, I've gotten sort of um, you know quite enthusiastic about sort of the idea but also quite um, concerned about the the knobs it pre- it, it, it presents. And you know, we we when we built the RCT system, right? We put a, a number of you know the whole blinding uh, stuff, and there's there's a lot of rules around how you do an RCT in order to prevent gaming. This so. is kind of a new uh, generation of 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 that idea, and it, it we'll we'll talk through it. But the, my sense is that it it hasn't matured yet to the point where we know all of the. Uh, all the knobs.
1: Okay, so I want to clarify a number of things. I'm going to try to um, stand in for the audience here and ask the questions I think they will obviously want, or at least some will want to know. When you say RCT, you're referring to randomized controlled trial, which many people will have heard many times during the pandemic, is the gold standard for scientific evidence. Now, Heather and I have challenged repeatedly whether or not it makes sense to think of it as the gold standard. It certainly has a, an advantage, which is if it is well done, it is excellent for taking what may be a very subtle effect and amplifying it so that you can see it above the noise. It tends to control for all of the factors that you may not even be aware are impinging on your trial to reveal a, uh, an actual effect. That being said, it is also an easily gamed structure. That is to say, it is sensitive if the underlying work is poorly thought out or if there is bad faith in its structuring, which we will get to. So randomized control trial is what you mean when you say RCT. And right. this is a double-blind randomized control trial. Double-blind, meaning that the whether or not any given individual was in Uh, A treatment arm or a treatment group, the treatment group or in the control group should have been opaque to both the experimenters and to the patients. So that is to say the sense that somebody is getting the drug and it is working or not working should have um, uh, not been available as an input, right? That people should not have known whether somebody was getting the treatment or getting the placebo. Dark Horse has a new sponsor with this episode, The Spectator. As the longest-running magazine in the world, and indeed the known universe, The Spectator eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. The Spectator also covers the best in books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. The U.S. edition of The Spectator has recently come ashore and is bringing its high-quality writing and analysis to U.S. audiences for the first time. We have a special offer for listeners of Dark Horse. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus, they're going to send you a free spectator hat, one great for free spectators. Just go to spectatorworld.com slash special offer and use the offer code DARKHORSE. Personally, I'm a fan of The Spectator because it is committed to the quality of its reasoning and writing, not to a particular political party or ideology. It's got amazing contributors, including Douglas Murray, Lionel Shriver, Julie Bindell, Christopher Buckley, Roger Scruton, and Dark Horse's own Heather Hying. The Spectator is less political party, more cocktail party. Whether you lean left or right, you are guaranteed to be entertained, informed, and enlightened from cover to cover. So sign up today and get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a hat that you can promise to eat if you're wrong, which you're unlikely to be as a reader of The Spectator. Subscribe today at spectatorworld.com special offer. Use the code darkhorse at checkout to redeem your offer. That's spectatorworld.com special offer and use the code darkhorse. This episode is sponsored by Farolife, which makes skincare products from animal fats. You heard me. When you work with your hands, your skin gets rough. Exposure to the sun and wind will do the same thing. Skin food by Ferrolife is a terrific solution. A little goes a long way. It's made in small batches here in the U.S., and the fat is 100% sourced from farms that use regenerative and pasture based animal husbandry, which Ferrolife calls smart lard technology. If you've got sensitive skin, or a baby with diaper rash, or a small child with eczema, or your hands are simply chapped from a night of grave robbing, you should try Ferrolife Skin Food. Ferrolife uses no artificial chemicals or preservatives, and the products are highly effective at moisturizing human skin. It really does work, and it doesn't make you smell like a girl either. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Ferrolife is a young company, the first skincare company of its kind, and it is eager to produce a diversity of healthy, high-quality products, including soap, deodorant, and lip balm. After all, the lard works in mysterious ways. Here at Dark Horse, we love what Farrow is doing and want to see them succeed. When you discover how effective their products are, you will too. Apply a little skin food daily to restore skin health, elasticity, and moisture. Dark Horse listeners can save 20% off their first purchase by going to darkhorse or applying the code Dark Horse at checkout. Additional 15% savings by signing up for a subscription to receive Pharaoh skin food on a monthly, bi monthly, or quarterly basis. That's pharaoh.life slash dark horse. All right, I'll let you pick up from there. We've got a randomized controlled trial, double blind, proceeding with multiple arms, that is to say, multiple drugs under test against a placebo
0: right right and that's sort of the the adaptive uh sort of uh, uh sort of innovation on top of the RCT sort of system uh, so you have multiple uh things running um and uh so so when when the trial started they were trying metformin which is one drug that uh, ended up being cut off early it wasn't it wasn't uh, it didn't seem to be doing anything um they were trying ivermectin uh, but at a tr- at a dose that uh, you know, uh, we we might consider homeopathic. I don't know. Like it was a uh, a, a, a single dose of 400 mcg per kilogram. Um, so and and that was if you are exactly 60 kilos. If you're above, you got less.
1: Wait 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 <laughs> wait. So when you say homeopathic, you're you're kidding. I'm kidding. Um, okay, and the basic is point is that homeopathy, which um, let's leave aside what we think of it, but the basic problem as us scientific and rational folks uh, have imagining that a homeopathic remedy might work is that the basic method for generating a homeopathic treatment is to dilute it so much that there is effectively um, no effectively no trace even at the molecular level of the drug in question or the substance in question so when you say that the initial ivermectin Uh, protocol involved a single treatment of what was the dosage Uh, 0.4
0: sorry 400 mcg per per kilogram
1: okay 400 mcg per kilogram in a single dose so anybody who is aware of treatment protocols that were being applied by people who uh, by doctors on the ground knows that that's way too low and a single even so the dosage per kilogram of body weight is low And a single dose is uh, an absurd protocol in light of what the doctors who were using this to treat patients believed worked. Um, And then you're telling me that there's a third issue there, which is. I mean,
0: yeah, in in an attempt to be extremely fair, uh, I did go and look at the FLCCC protocol at the time that the um this protocol was being designed so not even when it started but when it was designed the flcc was recommending two doses of 200 mcg per kg however this dose did not scale above 60 kilograms so if you're 120 which is close to my weight you'd get half of that right and and um it, it was not with a meal um it was uh, anyway so even 400 is basically a title number if i'm trying to guess the average that a patient would have gotten in that trial would be
1: more like 250. So Uh, so let me me try to clarify this. The question, uh, so first of all, people should know that there is a well-understood problem with what are called um, underpowered trials. If you want to do a trial and get no effect, one way to do it is to use way too little of whatever it is, right? If you want to test, for example, whether or not, um, water is a good treatment for dehydration. And you test a thimbleful of water in a population of a hundred people uh dying of thirst, a thimbleful of water will have some effect, but it will be so tiny that you will have almost no uh chance of spotting the difference in how long it takes those, you know, this is obviously an absurd example, yep. but um so an underpowered trial is a well understood thing. So one thing you might do if you were concerned that this was an underpowered trial is you would say, well, what dose did they use? And you would look at this dosage and you would have a per kilogram measure and you would say, well, it's not that underpowered. Okay. But the point is, if you're only looking at the no- the amount of ivermectin per unit of body weight, it may not be that underpowered. A single dose is um, 50% of what you're telling me that the C was Uh, using at the point the trial was designed, plus there's a kind of hidden factor here, which is that for reasons that maybe you'll tell me that they had some explanation, but for reasons that are not obvious to me, they had a 60 kilogram cutoff. So the bigger you were, the lower the dose per unit of body mass. Which is strange in light of the fact that A, this is a fat soluble drug. And so people with high BMIs might be expected to have this drug absorbed into adipose tissue and dropped to very low levels. Um, And then the next thing you're telling me is that they gave it on an empty stomach, which everybody who is aware of what a good procedure would have been for ivermectin is knows, because basically if you want the ivermectin to stay in your gut, because you have parasites and it is a very well understood anti-parasite drug, you would take it on an empty stomach so that it didn't get absorbed into the body. But if you're treating COVID, you would want to have it absorbed into yep. the body. So you would take it with a meal that had fatted.
0: Just to pull this all together, because I, I want to try to be very fair because the, the, the concern I'm going to raise is going to be very significant. So if we go back to December 20th, the FLCCC was not recommending uh, with a meal. In mid-January it was, but they would have had to revise their protocol to catch up anyway um so so it was known at the time it started but maybe not at the time that they designed it a month earlier um the the dose ultimately if we if we under what we understand of the demographics of the trial it was half it was high bmi over 30 half was low bmi so you can sort of try to, pro, to extrapolate the weights and stuff like that my sense is it was that ultimately they gave about 250 mcg per kg in a single dose if we just average it out all over all the patients but under dosing the the biggest bmi patients who are at most risk from COVID. so even that is is an a, 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 is not stating it too it, it, if we i don't know if we balance it all out probably that what you said half uh you know an effective 200 uh, mcg per kg uh is what you know what would be the equivalent that you would get you know
1: with with a lot of extrapolation and asterisks Okay, Um, so I I want to highlight something else, and I can see already how much trouble there is, but in some sense, this is, I think, what the audience is going to need to understand is that the reason that a randomized controlled trial might be an excellent kind of evidence is because it um, very powerfully takes everything that could possibly affect a trial that is not the treatment and neutralizes it by getting it equally into the control group and into the treatment group. The problem is when you have a protocol that is so Baroque that, and we have watched many people, I don't know how many people have been looking at this trial to try to figure out what happened, but we have what is at least 10, maybe dozens of people spending many, many hours looking at the uh, methods and just trying to reconstruct what actually took place. That should never be. It is vital. The, the value of something like a randomized controlled trial is completely dependent on the fact that we can scrutinize the method and say that if this is what was actually done, then we know what these results mean. If we can't figure out what was exactly done, if it's basically like a criminal investigation trying to sort out who did what when, what was the dosage that a person would have experienced, right? If we have that level of complexity, the thing is effectively invalid on arrival right you can't have something so baroque that you don't understand the experiment because it is vital that we be able to scrutinize it it has to be able to be pressure tested and if we don't know what happened then we have to speculate
0: yeah and and if i may the, the 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 misunderstanding that many of us had uh, early on about the the placebo group right having different uh, sizes and things. And 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 some people said online that, uh, well, you just don't understand adaptive trials. And, you know, clearly you just are showing your your, your lack of understanding. Uh, that particular feature that we all got caught up on, it was an innovative feature of this particular trial, <laughs> right? This was not even among adaptive trials. This was a specific, so, you know, it's a, it's a form that's evolving. There was a lot of complexity in figuring out what was going on. And I think anybody who says that you should be able to just like you know just read the paper and understand i mean i think we'll make it very very clear as we go through the work um but they're 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 fooling themselves so you're, and, you're, and, and,
1: you're talking about the issue where many of us including me thought that there was evident in the paper a number of people who went missing from the placebo right. group who dropped out and it turned out that was not the case Right. That was an error in interpretation. But the fact that many people made the same error suggests that that was at least an intuitive understanding of the paper as presented. And so this was a natural misunderstanding. Right. That one has an innocent explanation. Sure. Not all of these things do. I made the same mistake. And then as soon as I as I figured it out, I was
0: going around sort of trying to uh explain this to everybody so we don't keep uh, you know saying things that don't uh that were that didn't have validity because again I, I do believe there's actual issues that have
1: real validity right and so anyway as a general matter let's just say let's give them their due this is a very complex endeavor for many right. reasons it would be impossible to do it without making mistakes What one hopes is that the design is robust enough that the mistakes are not consequential. Um, But some of the things that people have spotted in this trial turn out to have innocent explanations or not be very important. Others do not appear to have innocent explanations or not be very important. Now, that could be that the, the people who ran the trial didn't spot the errors and that they... Uh, would become aware of them as people scrutinize their paper. The editors should have caught it. The peer reviewers should have caught it. But um, that, you know, it's not so unusual that something emerges and then issues crop up. But at some point, the fact that the authors are not forthcoming with data that would allow us to figure out for sure that they don't answer questions that allow us to nail down exactly what did take place in their methodology uh, and that they are cagey um, or inconsistent in responding to questions about what they did all of those things suggest something else and sure. yeah we'll get there so anyway yep. there are innocent problems there are other problems that look not so innocent let's let's get to them
0: so uh, as we said in the beginning, they started with metformin, low dose ivermectin. Uh, that, that's how the arm is called. Uh, in the in, whenever they mention it, um, fluvoxamine was the other arm that was on, and of course placebo. Uh, so they were running a one 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 randomization uh, scheme. So basically, it was not exactly like this, but just abstractly, you can think as the patients were coming into the various uh, trial uh, centers, um, they were. Evenly allocating them to the four arms we mentioned.
1: So, evenly allocating in a way that would have been blind to their characteristics. They should be randomly allocated to the multiple arms of the trial. Uh, including the placebo group. And the result of that should be that any sort of pattern in the way people showed up should be disrupted by an algorithm that isn't scrutinizing them in any way is just simply assigning them to one treatment or another, or to the placebo group. So that should destroy uh, spurious correlations that would be in the clustering of people somehow.
0: Yep so uh yeah so so here's where things start to go kind of uh interesting so on the 15th of february uh this is less than a month into the trial um there's a protocol that appears a a new version of the protocol of the trial uh it's dated february 15th and it's submitted to the brazilian authorities on february 19th um for approval for ethics approval to change how the trial works this is how you do it right you and that's that's a that's a that's a good practice you change your protocol and then you send it to the authorities of the country you're in to make sure that you're, you're not doing something they don't um, they don't consider to be correct you know giving too much giving too little whatever it is they need to have a need to have a say um here's where things become interesting so that protocol was re- recommending stopping the ivermectin arm because the dose was so low as we said as to make the results not interesting, essentially, right? By that time, there was quite a bit of uproar. They mentioned advocacy groups had reached out to them. Um, For whatever reason, they said, look, we're gonna stop the ivermectin arm, the low dose one, and we're gonna start it again with a higher dose. Good. Um, The problem is that they continued recruiting patients into the low dose arm after they had submitted it to the Brazilian authorities. So you now have a situation where you are recruiting people into an arm of a trial that um, you don't, you sh- you probably don't believe that the dose is going to be effective, right? So why are you doing that? Uh, but even if you did, let's say you say, no, no, I think it's effective, but others don't. Whatever. Well, you're going to throw away the data. You're going to stop the trial. It's going to be you know thrown away. So why are these people being you know put into a trial that you don't think? Uh, you know, is is, is going to amount to anything? And indeed, we have not seen that data. The the data of the, the the arm that was cut short, we we have no sense of you know what what those numbers were. Um, so that's I, I find it particularly concerning because you know it's somebody who's sick, uh, high risk patient uh, enters a trial. You know, you want to think that you're doing the best according to your state of knowledge at the time, and that doesn't. I, I don't. I can't understand how
1: the researchers put 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 those two stories together. So um, let us say this is a case where something very odd happened, right? Whether that odd thing is consequential is not obvious, right? It is perfectly possible to continue to run an arm of a study that you know isn't useful and to never report that data. And it it's an absurd thing to do, but it's not necessarily destructive Of the conclusion that you ultimately do report based on other patients. On the other hand, one can certainly think of reasons that you might continue to recruit or to continue to treat and I think recruit into that arm of the trial, even though you didn't intend to report the data, right? It's not easy to think of reasons, but it's not too difficult either and we will get to some possible reasons yeah. but it, ultimately i think the answer is going to have to be we don't know and we shouldn't sure have to speculate
0: yeah so so yeah just to give a sense uh, before february 15th where the, tro- the new protocol is dated there were about 19 patients recruited into the low-dose ivermectin arm after there's 59 patients so the vast majority of the patients was recruited after they had already determined to change the protocol and who knows when they started talking about changing the protocol. That's the date. The 15th of February is the date of the protocol. It, it's on the protocol itself. Um, anyway, so that happens. And then on March, w- what I estimate is March 4th. And this is by, uh, by the way, what am I using? Where are these numbers coming from that I'm talking about? These are coming from materials released by the uh, investigators themselves on August 6th. Literally one day after the trial was completed, they came out with the results. What you mentioned that it came out in, in the summer. Um, So, they showed us um, a a, a graph, which is kind of the second visual in in the article, um, which kind of showed per week how many patients were recruited into each arm. So, that gives us a lot of information, not only about the totals. uh, This graph, by the way, agrees with all the publications they've put out. It's not sort of inconsistent. It's not some sort of throwaway. The the data checks out with everything they've published in, in, in their papers. Um, so, so we, we know quite a bit about what, what the pace of enrollment was in each arm. Um, so, so around March 4th, based on, based on that data, um, they stopped the low dose arm. There's not an obvious reason why that was the date. Um, and then around March 15th, the Brazilian authorities approve the, uh, the new protocol um in their paper in the new england journal of medicine they say that approval came on the 21st of, of march i'm not sure why uh and on march 23rd they start enrolling patients in the new uh in the new arm so the the um the protocol is declared to clinical trials, trials.gov which is kind of where you go to make your you know all serious trials sort of go there to to, to to put up their protocols to make sure that they've to have a to have a reassur- an assurance for everybody that that protocol was their protocol at the time, right? The, the, the government sort of reassuring everybody that they're not going to let you change that after the fact. So we know March 21st, what their protocol was. And by 23rd, they started enrolling um, uh, patients into what essentially seemed to be like they rebooted ivermectin trial, right? Which started with a low dose. We cut it short at 77 patients. We, we had a bit of a break. And then we're starting over with a high dose, higher dose, Uh, ivermectin uh, arm while the other arms are ongoing, right? So the fluvoxamine arm from January is ongoing. The metformin arm from January is ongoing and the placebo arm is ongoing.
1: So So far, so good. Yeah, so far, so good. I will say that uh, you have put together a easy to understand timeline that has these things as different strata. So you can see where the low dose arm stops the gap in time you can see the higher dose uh booted up you can see where we think various approvals and things happen Uh, anyway it's all visually presented here and let's put it this way there's nothing you know there's no reason that them pointlessly continuing to recruit people into the low dose arm that's there's nothing fatal about that There's nothing fatal about them discovering that their protocol is wrong and starting from scratch as long as they say, here's the period of time in which we delivered this dosage, etc. But the question is, is this about something? is there structure to what took place in here that actually skews our understanding of what they report? Or is this just the difficulty of running a complex trial and, you know, discovery along the way of what you should have put in motion to begin with. Um, And anyway, uh, we'll see that, but I would, I would advise people who are following along to look at your timeline to understand what's taking place.
0: So the, um, if we here's here's where uh, so March 23rd is really the date where things start to go um, get really strange. So the third diagram on my on my uh, article is um, I, I've focused on a 10 week period between uh, February 22 February 22nd and the week starting April 26th. Uh, in that sort of 10 week period we have two weeks where, Allocation is sort of normal. It's the end of the low dose ivermectin arm. We have two weeks where there's no allocation to low dose ivermectin because that arm has been stopped, which is normal. Uh, And then we have the first two weeks of the high dose ivermectin arm. And that these are the kind of the 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 two weeks where things start to look really strange. So So when you
1: say allocation, you're talking about allocation of new recruits to this trial. These are patients, and these are people who have COVID. Correct. So these are Brazilians. who have Antigen COVID.
0: positive tests. So okay. it's not a it's not a PCR, but the, it, and and really this is actually maybe interesting to to mention here. Um, this is done in Brazil, right? Um, during um, you know the the early twenty twenty one period, everybody can sort of remember here. But there, that's exactly when the gamma wave, the gamma variant wave, is sort of at its at its peak. Um, and the pictures that are being sort of transmitted, even in the paper, you can read in, in some of the appendixes about what was going on is like, apocalyptic. You kind of get the picture of a um, early early pandemic Italy. Like that's my picture in my head. People being hospitalized in corridors, you know, facilities being overrun. Um, people needing to set up, you know, like uh, temporary facilities to, 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 to work with the, with the volume of patients. That sort of thing. Um, so
1: that's what's, that's what's happening in, in, the, in the surrounding uh, sort of you know, world around this trial. So that uh, I think this is vitally important. And people who are not experienced thinking about scientific experimental design are not necessarily going to intuit this. But the experimenters can do nothing about the fact that in order to do their trial, they are interfacing with a fluctuating pattern. Right. right we are talking about covid it's not consistent over time how many people have it which variant they have how sick they are getting how people feel about it which matters because of course that's part of why we have the placebo group is that people's perceptions play into these things so in effect what we have is a is a trial that is recruiting sick people sick people who have vulnerabilities comorbidities right um And they are being recruited into a trial. It's voluntary, right? And so that the fact of them showing up is likely the result of the fact that they want, you know, imagine yourself uh, facing the question of, should I participate in a scientific trial of uh, a drug that might be effective against COVID? What motivates a person to do that? Well, one of the things that motivates a person to do that is, I'm sick and I'm frightened, and if I enter this trial, there's a 50% chance that I'm going to get a treatment that somebody thinks might be effective. Right. So 75 people, is adaptive. So
0: even, oh, even right.
1: chances. So uh, so in any case, you have people volunteering to enter the trial, hoping to get a drug that will treat a disease that they have and are concerned is a danger to them. And right. the degree to which they are afraid, the degree to which they are sick and what they are sick with is changing over the course of this trial, which mm-hmm. the experimenters can do nothing about. The background right. is going to fluctuate. What they sure. can do is they can make a protocol that neutralizes that effect right um now how do they do
0: so this is where this is where things become strange and i I can find no explanation as to what happened on that week that starts march 22nd on march 23rd and the second day they start recruiting into the high dose ivermectin arm now that week we would expect because all four arms that we described are act high dose ivermectin metformin faloxamine placebo we would expect roughly 25% allocation to each arm. Instead, what we have, and it doesn't have to be exactly 25, just to be clear, like there, there can be some fluctuation because there's, uh, there's block randomization certifications. There's, there's, there's reasons why that, that might play. Um, but that week, we see 57% of all patients that come in are allocated to the ivermectin high-dose arm. This is at the, pe- at the peak of the, of, the, of the gamma variant wave.
1: Okay. In the first, the first week of the, the, the new sort of arm that's uh, started. So we have to unpack here a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two kinds of error, uh, two kinds of uh, error that can creep into an experiment. The randomized controlled trial is designed to neutralize the noise. However, to the extent that the neutralization mechanism is um not effective in actually randomizing, then the point is it actually introduces structure, right? So what you're getting at, which is I think going to be quite subtle for people, is that the moment in time in which people enter the study is r- predictive in ways that we know and ways that we don't know of what they're Uh, their prognosis will be. And so to the extent that the allocation, that the randomization uh, by the algorithm does not, uh, is um, structured with respect to when it allocates people to what, right? You are going to get uh, a non-random effect, right? That is to say, if you've got a clump of people who come in the door at the same time, then they may be sick with something less severe they may be sick with something more severe as long as they're equally distributed through the various uh, arms it doesn't matter but if they're lumped then it matters in a critical way
0: sure sure and, and and again think keep in mind that also the facilities are overrun which means that people might be getting less good care
1: hmm. right ah so th- this is another uh, i hadn't thought of this one but this is a this is another subtle effect which is that as you get a wave of COVID, even if they were sick with the identical thing you right. obviously have limited medical resources and so the more yep. people who are sick at one time the less good care they would get the worse their prognosis would tend to be right yep. so the point is time plays a critical role here and what one needs is a bomb proof method for neutralizing the structure in time and uh anyway i know you're going to get deeper into what happens
0: yeah this is this is what's called confounding by time technically right so so you if you unless your patients are you know roughly in the same sort of time time frame um then you are using a different this offset itself can introduce the bias is what you're saying
1: yep absolutely it can introduce a critical bias and frankly if the bias uh It may sound to people as if random error um, is worse than systematic error. Um, random error sounds scary, but random error is not a terrible problem uh, in science. It can be swamped out by simply increasing the size of a study. Systematic error is the dangerous thing, and th- we're what we are talking about here are systematic errors. Um, it's the
0: very reason we do a randomized control trial, right? What you were saying before, that this is the, the, at the root of the motivation of, of doing it this way. Yep. If we're not doing it this way, then we're not doing it this way,
1: basically. It's, it's
0: yeah. I, I, all all yeah, the guarantees it, that you're getting are, are, are sort of starting to, to, to exit, the, <laughs> exit the stage.
1: Right. And so uh, it is also the case that, so, you know, we, we who have talked about the effectiveness of ivermectin right, who have discussed it, have been faced with the claim that any evidence that doesn't come through a large scale randomized controlled trial is unimportant. And we must await the large scale randomized controlled trial because of its ability to neutralize these kinds of effects. Right. Right. We then have the conclusion from this trial presented more than half a year before we are able to look at the methods. Largest randomized controlled trial of ivermectin to date discovers... Uh, that there is no uh, effect. Now, we will talk about whether that's actually what it discovered. But nonetheless, that's what we were told. And then there was a more than half a year delay in our ability to figure out what was in this trial. And then right. on looking at what was in the trial, the methods and, and and what was done, the point is, well, it wasn't a randomized controlled trial because the attempt to randomize was structured in a way that was ineffective relative to right. the background fluctuations. So, you know, either it doesn't
0: matter by the way if it was done on purpose or by accident right we're yep. going to talk about maybe some explanations about what could have could have happened though the explanations are separate from what did happen and what that means um but it doesn't have to be on purpose that we're not necessarily saying that this particular blip was, was somebody sort of was was putting their thumb on the scale or, or something uh we're not saying it wasn't but there there could be reasonable explanations. What, what we're saying though is that the effect on the results is orthogonal is completely separate to the motivation question
1: well the point is it looks like a randomized controlled trial the intent was apparently to run a randomized controlled trial but if the randomization fails then you can't say well this is the gold standard because it was a randomized controlled trial um so effectively the point yep. is what is this trial evidence of and how should it be integrated with the other evidence we have is the question and that the label on the box saying it was a randomized controlled trial means nothing if the randomization wasn't uh, effective yep. yeah yeah uh,
0: so so just to uh, con- con- continue with, the, with the, sort of the, the data we're talking about. The first week, it's 57% on high-dose ivermectin. Second week, uh, it's 41% high-dose ivermectin, right? and These and, are the allocations
1: uh, he, by the algorithm. The
0: allocation to the different arms. And 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 by the way, keep in mind that this means that uh, the other arms are also being under allocated, right? So if you got 57%, uh, you know, just r- roughly 60 going into one arm, you'll have roughly 15% going to each of the, wait, uh, you'll have, 40 by three, whatever, like 13%, 12% um, going on average to the other arms, right? So the, the, the disparity is, is, is huge, here, like, you know, 57 versus 13, something like that, or, or 14%, say, yeah, something like that.
1: So uh, I, I guess the way for people to think about this is imagine just as a thought experiment, that COVID was a perfectly uniform phenomenon in the background, that every week was like every other week with respect to how many people were sick, what they were sick with, how sick they got, how much care they got, right? If if there was no variation in the background uh, COVID phenomenon, then the allocation to uh, one arm in a particular week versus the other arms wouldn't end up having a consequential effect in the data. It still renders the trial not a randomized controlled trial. But if the background wasn't fluctuating, maybe it would have no impact on the conclusion. On the other hand, if one imagines that some weeks are terrible COVID weeks and people are sicker because the doctors are stretched too thin or the doctors themselves are sick or uh, whatever the effect or there's a change in the variant that's circulating in the place where the trial is being done and people are sicker with a worse disease if there if that structure exists where some weeks are worse than others then you can imagine if the people who were sicker got uh um, disproportionately loaded into the high dose ivermectin arm then it would make ivermectin look less effective right? right because the point is the outcome that's being measured which in this case is hospitalization um, would uh people would be hospitalized for reasons that weren't about the treatment they were getting they were it's because that was a sicker week. Yep.
0: So, um yeah, so moving on about um what is it sort of f- 4 or 5 weeks later, uh the 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 allocation balances out, right? And it starts to operate in a fairly predictable way. So if you if we if if anybody's following along, you see the next diagram with the, with a the curve um, you can see that after, uh, it was like April 4th, I believe, uh, maybe, but maybe April 8th, um, the, 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 the allocation starts being uh, smooth, like all the arms are growing at the same rate, uh, which means that, uh, you know, they're kind of uniform, right? That the algorithm, whatever was going on, the, the allocation now has been restored and it continues being, uh, sort, sort of regular. Um, so we're, we're left with this strange sort of, uh, uh, four-ish weeks at the beginning of the high dose ivermectin arm where we had more patients uh, allocated just even arithmetically we had more patients allocated to the uh high dose ivermectin arm and then we don't have equivalently more patients being allocated to the placebo arm that is supposed to be at the same uh period of time so in in their paper that they published the, the authors swear up and down that all the patients that we're looking at are after march 23rd both for placebo and for treatment this is as clear as it gets. Um, but when we see there, there are normal, normal arms and there are various publications for fluvoxamine, for uh, for metformin, and we, we we assemble the results, there's, there's um, the, at the end of the sort of the ivermectin uh, trial in, in August, we have 679 patients for ivermectin. Okay, that's close to what they had said, even though there was some, some ambiguity, but let's, let's grant that. Um, but we have, I believe, 604 patients uh, on the uh, placebo arm that could be uh, compared against ivermectin. yet what they report is 679 placebo patients. So there's this weird 75, you know, the ghosts of Belo Horizonte, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, the, the the city where most of the most of the tri- uh, centers were. Uh, 75 patients. We we don't know um, where they came from. Now there is one theory that uh, one hypothesis that 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 fits everything we know which is that, the, remember the two-week gap we were talking about before the start of the uh, high-dose ovomachinone? Well, that's, has, th- that gap has exactly 75 patients extra in the placebo arm,
1: right? So, yep. So uh, fill that in. What does that imply? So, um,
0: so, so the hypothesis, just to, be, to, to spell it out, is that those 75 patients were used. Uh, so, so the placebo arm was, was taking over a longer period of time than the uh, ivermectin R, right It had two extra weeks yeah. at the beginning now those two extra weeks at the beginning uh when we look at the case fatality rate from the from the area had a lower case fatality rate so it was right before the kind of the burst of the gamma wave gamma wave that sounds like anyway gamma variant <laughs> wave <laughs> there was no radioactive no, radi- no radiation to, yeah. uh, to, to discern anyway maybe i should look into it um but um uh, so so we have a lower um Case uh, m- mortality, actually, uh, in that previous r- period right before.
1: Um,
0: the, there's another problem, and this problem I just can't. Wait, just wait, can't wait, 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 wait. We,
1: we, I don't want you to go on to your next problem yet because, again, this is too subtle. Okay, let's but make it more. Uh, so, if the hypothesis is correct that they used the placebo recruited. Patients from an earlier period than the ivermectin, the high dose ivermectin patients to whom they were being compared, then that is a failure of control, right? Right. So we had a failure of randomization, and now we have a failure of control. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that's a failure of control, and in this case, um, there are lots of ways this could go, but because the weeks in question were less severe COVID weeks, It makes the placebo group look healthier. So if you took the high dose ivermectin patients from a week when things were particularly bad, they would tend to be sicker. And if you take the placebo patients to whom they are being compared from a relatively less sick week, then that will tend to make the drug look less effective, whatever its Mm -hmm. actual effect is. Um, So that if it is true is the second utterly fatal failure here now i want to point to a third failure the obvious thing is you say well here's a hypothesis about where these patients came from you researchers have published this paper if those placebo uh, controls were not from this period where it seems likely they came from, then you researchers have the most incentive of anybody to simply reveal what the discrepancy in the data is about, and they should be eager to do it. And to the extent that they are not being forthcoming about showing their data, that is odd. Right. Yep. You have an anomaly. It's not unusual that a paper is ambiguous in terms of what it presents. But the right remedy, the normal scientific remedy is for a request to be made to see the data and yep. for that data to be provided so that it's clear that there's nothing being hidden.
0: Right. Right. And and uh, in fact, as, as per the fluvoxamine paper that was published in, I believe, uh, October In the Lancet, uh, if you look at the data sharing uh, statement, they say, you know, upon publication of this manuscript, we will make the data available through some procedure that, you know, I have more questions with. But the long story short is that that didn't happen. There is no access to the data as of October. Um, They said the same uh, in the publication now in the New England Journal of Medicine still not the case they now in an email the 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 principal investigator said we're busy because we're submitting a eua for this other drug that succeeded and you know we'll we'll do it basically (laughs) but but that that will go to some some body that you have to submit a research proposal and that body in in coordination with the investigators will review and approve this was not what was promised originally they said upon request upon termination Right? When we're done, ask for the data, you know, if you look legit, we'll give you the data. Um, that's not what's happening. And actually, not, none of those two things are happening. It's not upon determination. right? So we're still waiting. And um, the process is looking, starting to, to acquire hoops to to, to, to to jump through, which uh, look, we are well. In a situation- look,
1: I, I hate to use this metaphor. Maybe it's unfair, um, although maybe it isn't. You know, you say, well, um, Uh, This that you've published does not add up as it is. Can I see the data? And they say, do you have a warrant? Right? I mean, the the question is, why are they not providing the data? They should be eager to do it. Because the fact is, it would become obvious. If the mistakes are trivial, it would become obvious. If there are mistakes that are not trivial, but they are uh, made in good faith, that's not fatal. But what is fatal is things that cannot be reconciled in what they published and a refusal to clarify what generated those anomalies
0: yeah yeah and and um it so and and it should be noted right that this is happening in a in a period of time and in in a specific sort of molecule that's being investigated that has attracted a lot of scrutiny and to the degree that the studies are being scrutinized and and bad science is being found out, I, I absolutely have no objection personally. Um, we sure. all learned a lot about what to trust and what not to trust. We we've gotten more skeptical as a result. Uh, I you know uh, I, I subscribe to that to that uh, program. Um, I, I do not subscribe to the claims that were made on the basis of those findings. That the entire research of that field is now a fraud or, you know, these kinds of things, because it actually, when I looked at the baseline, like how, like if I get 100 randomized trials in anything, how many randomized trials do I expect to be garbage, right? Junk, uh, sloppy, uh, fraud, whatever, about 20%.
1: Which is shocking until you realize, well, it's it's crazy if you imagine, which most people do, that the purpose of science is to figure out what's taking place. But what people don't understand is that there is a uh, substantial and hidden landscape of perverse incentives, right? right? Academics are competing with each other for grant money. They're competing for jobs and the ability to publish something somewhere is part of the key to getting ahead. So why are 20% of the studies, you know, dead on arrival in terms of the quality of the methods or what was actually done? Well, it has a lot to do with the fact that you get rewarded for publishing something, you don't necessarily get rewarded for having done the job well, which slows it down and means you publish fewer things. Sure. In fact, you get punished for it. So Anyway, we did find we did find out uh, that there's a shocking level of of garbage in science. But you're right; the fact that even a fraudulent trial uh, doesn't say anything about the trials that weren't fraudulent. These are independent right. pieces of evidence, and this is part of why some of us have pointed to meta-analysis as right. a better standard, because unlike the uh, randomized controlled trial it's not easily gamed and at the point that you find out the study in your meta-analysis isn't valid either because it was method- methodologically flawed or fraudulent you can just simply click it off and see how it affects the analysis yep. right it's a robust method um, so uh, anyway th- 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 there are many concerns here but i would say if i was an editor who had published this and I watched the authors refuse to clarify significant issues that were raised by critics who are looking at the paper and asking obvious questions, that would set off alarm bells.
0: Yep. So, so remember we talked about the 75 uh, ghost patients. Um, so there's another uh, difference between these patients. Um, and this is, uh, I find it quite humorous for reasons I'll, I'll mention later, but um, the, the, it appears that the protocol that changed on March twenty first, right, um, made a change from the original protocol that was in, in force in early January when the when the previous batch of patients, including the seventy five, were recruited. Um, the the original protocol cited SARS CoV two vaccination as an enhancement factor of your risk for whatever reason, um, which means that you are, uh, you know, if you have other basic uh, criteria met, this is kind of the big one, you get included in the trial. So if you were vaccinated uh, in that period of early January until early uh, March, if you were vaccinated and you showed up at one of the trial centers in that period of time, um, that was a reason to add you to the trial. Maybe they wanted data for that. I can even come up with actually reasonable explanation, which is that um, maybe in Brazil at that time, they were only vaccinating the high-risk patients. So they're like, this is kind of a proxy for high-risk. I don't know. Um, but they would they would add you to the trial. Um, after March 21st, the vaccination switched from being an inclusion uh, reason to an exclusion reason. So if you were vaccinated, they say, sorry, we can't add you to our trial. This is like a, a pretty big, you know, so some of the previous patients are vaccinated. All of the later patients are not
1: vaccinated. So if the issue of placebos and... Uh, treatments for ivermectin being disjunct in time is what it appears to be right then the change in protocol from an inclusion criterion to an exclusion criterion is absolutely fatal now i know that the authors have claimed it's just a typo Am I correct that that's? No,
0: has no it's, been... not, it's not the author. It's not the author. Absolutely, I, I, I know. This oh, is somebody. Uh, some somebody on the internet that claims. Somebody
1: us. on the internet. Some
0: some person on the internet uh, who, who is, is is ever present when when uh, a certain molecule is is uh, discussed favorably.
1: Oh well, okay.
0: Um, so. But that's the best. That's the best critique we've seen. that, that, that I mean, it's so implausible, basically. That what he, he ended up saying is that um, this All is right. so crazy. That it could only be a typo it could only have be a no typo. reason to believe it actually happened,
1: which of course makes i mean I'm, uh, given that it's not the author who has said it, we yeah. shouldn't dwell here, but no. it makes no sense as a typo oh. um first of all, it's hard to specify what the typo would be in, in in any case, but so what we've got then is an incredibly important anomaly now, I will point out you could make an argument for vaccination as an exclusion criterion you could make an argument for it as an inclusion criterion what is absolutely vital is that it does not change in a way that uh separates the placebo group from the treatment group right and we appear to have the possibility here and you can you know for those uh trying to follow how this would have worked to the extent that the vaccines have a positive impact on uh, one's trajectory with COVID. uh, If you have a placebo group in which people are uh, included because they are vaccinated, then they will do Better than they might if they had been unvaccinated and that will tend to make the treatment look less effective. So another thing that people should be tracking is, okay, it's a complex trial. There are lots of nuances. The people running the trial are discovering errors that they make in real time and trying to correct them. But when all of the errors go in one direction, a direction that would tend to make this particular treatment um, look ineffective, even if it was effective, that raises questions in and of itself. Right, it's possible right. to have errors that go in both directions. You would expect them to be equally likely, but when all of the errors go in one direction, um, that again sets or should send up red flags.
0: Yep, and and you know this is basically what we just described is kind of the the heart of the issue, and it's kind of one of you know it's a cluster of of, of errors uh, that that happen around this one thing. I have a hypothesis. That I don't know if it's worth going into about what might've happened, which is that um, it, there's a curious pattern about uh, how the allocation happens, which is that the, the, the algorithm that's allocating seems to, after early April, um, balance what the fluvoxamine arm Uh, So, uh, you know, on a certain date, there's like a certain number of patients in the phylloxamine arm. There's a certain number of patients in the placebo arm, and there's a certain number of patients on the low dose plus high dose ivermectin arm. And those numbers are within, you know, one or two or three of each other, right? They're very, very close and they're kept close for the whole time. Why would the total number of the low dose and high dose ivermectin uh, patients match the number of fluvoxamine patients and placebo patients at the same time. Well, m- my hypothesis is that basically, when they stopped the low-dose ivermectin arm, or they halted it, or whatever, however they told the algorithm, don't send patients there anymore. Um, and when they brought it back, uh, rather instead of saying like delete it, like forget about this, or, or or stop it and then start a new one, they said we're bringing the old, you know, start sending patients to ivermectin again. And what that did is when the algorithm sees the sort of the, the, the chunks it's made along the way, it's like, wait, I've, I've made, you know, little groups before here that are short the patient now because the ever thing that I was supposed to sending patient, be sending patients to, I wasn't doing that for a couple of weeks. So I, I got to go back and backfill basically those little blocks I had made of, of, of patients um, to, to, to make it all add up. And, and, and you would do that, Right. Um, When you're coding one of these algorithms, because there's fluctuation, because there's randomness, you code it to recover. You code it to sort of see differences between um, uh, where it should be and where it actually is and take actions to rebalance because that could be happening for all sorts of reasons. This, well, is a, this is a massive change, right? There's a massive difference that it should not have been coded to recover from, but I can imagine algorithmically
1: why you would code it to have some self-healing properties. basically. Right. And self-healing properties are one thing if it is coded not to imbalance between the placebo and the treatment, right? In other words, rebalancing the arms as long as you don't unbalance the placebo versus the treatment, um, could be done in a way that would not be consequential but if you uh code your algorithm so that it just tries to get back to the state that it was targeted to deliver and that unbalances you between the placebo and the treatment then it's uh again another the
0: algorithm doesn't understand and like it's think of a person in a black box Literally giving letters to people like you are group A group that doesn't know about protocols, doesn't know about variants, doesn't know about uh, you know. It, it seems that it might not even have known that the trial like it was like a, a material difference between before and after. So it's just like hey you know you know uh, how we model computers right? They are a very efficient person who is not very smart. Like they just do what they're told. So that I'm not saying that um, what it did was fine. What I'm saying is what it did was as instructed. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, it's Hal. Uh,
0: yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, so that could have happened or something else that I don't know about, but it just from my, you know, my, my, my field of expertise to, from people, for people that might not know is in, in computing. So uh, you know, I, I can imagine how I might have done uh, a coding error like that. Um, but
1: again, so anyway. again, to the extent that an error was made, like they programmed an algorithm in a way that seemed reasonable, but turned out to have uh, consequences, the only acceptable thing them to do is to acknowledge that this has implications to share frankly the algorithm uh, and share the data that would allow us to look at the consequences so that we could adjust our understanding of their conclusion exactly
0: yeah so 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 that's this is where you know i i run out of uh, good faith explanations because all of this could have happened for some reason that was not necessarily nefarious um it's 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 a like a you know kind of a you know terrible coincidence it's the middle of the pandemic chaos whatever um but uh from that point at some point it became apparent right this is visible if i can see it they can they can see it i don't believe that they're they're that incompetent uh so they must have chosen at some point to sort of obscure it to say like look it's not a big deal uh we'll just publish anyway um
1: well i would also you know,
0: or, or, or you know, I, 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 assuming the best here.
1: Well, I think you have to start out assuming the best, right? It's not even necessarily justified, but it is the only practical starting point that does not result in chaos. But the problem is it is highly abnormal and scientifically invalid to share the conclusion months ahead of time to broadcast it at the highest levels and then upon the release, it's not even that they broadcast the conclusions and the study was good, but we couldn't scrutinize it for more than six months. They broadcast conclusions that were utterly black and white. In fact, black and white, far beyond what's actually uh, written in the paper. If you read it carefully, right? The right. title does not match what is in the paper. But right. the uh the fact of that mismatch and the lack of responsiveness to the degree to which the conclusions, these black and white conclusions that are not mirrored by what they actually found, the, the degree of mismatch and the lack of, of forthcomingness amounts to something, right? First of all, it is, as far as the philosophy of science goes, absolutely fatal to the evidentiary nature of what they did. Right? not clarifying the degree to which their conclusions are overstated because their method doesn't reflect um, uh, a, a proper randomization or control. We could take it as some kind of evidence if we could correct for it. But if they're not going to give us the information to allow us to correct for it, that is, scientifically speaking, the end of the evidentiary value here.
0: Yep. And, and by the way, there's another conclusion in here that I, I resisted early on. And do not like, but I must highlight it. Um, so for the fluvoxamine arm, right? First of all, the plant size was 681 patients. They and they 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 go through the the calculations of how they made that specific number. It sounds like okay, why like 681? But it, it comes out of a mathematical calculation that they had done early. Um, and the ivermectin arm indeed was cut. Uh, 679 for, for spite, you know, that's just too short. Uh, that's fine. Um, but the fluvoxamine arm was allowed to actually extend to 741, uh, 742 in their original, actually, and 741 in the published paper. I don't know what happened to the extra guy. Um, and then 756 placebo patients, which is, you know, and I think a nine percent overrun in patients. Um, and you might say, like, look, you know, they, they can't keep an eye on this all the time. So it's gonna overrun. Fine, but then the ever-mechanal was cut exactly short. So e- exactly the time. So they seem to have the capability to do it for one thing, but not for another. That's, I, I'm starting to get a little bit curious here. Um, and and, and, and the, the anomaly that we're talking about, right? When we're saying that they overallocated these patients who were potentially more, uh, more diseased uh, or, or more likely to, 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 to have a, a negative outcome, to ivermectin that also means they under allocated them to uh, to fluvoxamine uh so they over allocated uh, the
1: fluvoxamine result as well they over allocated patients to fluvoxamine and underallocated sickness right yeah okay no, that, i
0: mean this is this is uh, clear from the and and also we're allocating in the before times as well so they don't
1: have the imbalance between the previous protocols. so uh, we don't know anything about the intent Obviously, it's a multi-authored paper. There may not even, you know, to the extent that there are flaws here, they may owe to one person's contribution or another. But the point is the the weird structuring, right, where fluvoxamine gets an overallocation of people, if one were going to engineer a trial to reach an artificially um, negative conclusion for a drug like ivermectin. One way to do it is to, if the trial is unblinded, is to shunt people into another arm, right? In other words, if you see people who are uh, disproportionately uh, likely to survive or to not need hospitalization and they show up in another arm, then the point is, uh, you know, a, a, a knowing experimenter can rig a trial in this way. I'm not saying anybody rigged this trial, but the point is, the more anomalies like this you have that allow somebody to um, engineer a desired result, uh, the more we have to ask the question if that's what happened. And unfortunately, in this environment, we all know that there was tremendous pressure, right? Those of us who talked about ivermectin got tremendous pressure. Uh, blowback for even mentioning the possibility that it worked. And so what we have is an incentive to find that result. And we have anomalies in this trial that would allow a, uh, an engineering of that result that are otherwise difficult to explain. Like, why would you over allocate, uh, patients to the fluvoxamine? arm?
0: So two, two points here, first of all, you're making a great segue to something that, um, was said in the in a recent uh presentation of the results by the authors um i don't remember the the, the person's name is frank something he says you know there's a real question whether we we cut this trial too short in light of the political pressure to show that ivermectin did not work he, so this is not you saying that this is them saying that right and that they cut it short but in light of the fact that they didn't cut fluvoxamine short in fact they let it well, no, I should say that they stopped it at exactly the prescribed time and they didn't, you know, add a few more patients. In fact, Mills, the, the principal investigator, uh, in his email to Steve Kirsch said, um, I actually think the result is positive and it showed a 17% reduction in hospitalization. And uh, if we had only randomized a few more patients, um, uh, I believe that it would have come out significant. So uh, this is literally his quote. So, this is uh,
1: This is stunning. The principal investigator on this trial, this trial, which has been heralded from the rooftops as suggesting that this drug has no effect. The principal investigator believes that the trial showed that it was not effective because they didn't have enough patients, that, the, that they, he believes they saw an effect. Yep, right? And that if they had randomized more patients that that effect would have been such that the conclusion would have been different. That is an amazing thing <laughs> to be true coming from the primary author on a paper that the Wall Street Journal is telling us says Ivermectin doesn't work.
0: Yep, yep. No, it's it's um it's it's kind of um, I I don't know what to say. And 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 it comes in these contradictions that we're hearing, right? Because the 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 Wall Street Journal quote uh, might say no effect whatsoever or no indication that uh, ivermectin works. The emails say other things. The paper itself yet seems to be have a split personality. And we can go into that if you want.
1: Well, I do think this is important. And I remember back from when the ivermectin arm result was announced, seven or I guess it's closer to eight months now. Is that right? Um, when that was announced, the poll quote, was no effect whatsoever which even at the time it was clear wasn't true there was an effect the question is was the effect large enough that we could be sure it wasn't statistical noise but there was a positive effect it wasn't no effect whatsoever and here you have you know seven or eight months later you have the principal investigator saying he believes they saw an effect that the trial wasn't big enough to clarify it so how is it that journalists at the wall street journal can't figure out that at at worst what we have here is a result that suggests ivermectin might work but the trial wasn't large enough to spot it
0: yep yep now it, it's worth mentioning that in in the paper itself um they and this is going to it's throwing off people constantly um they do not ec- practice um, frequentist statistics the usual statistics the whole p-value confidence interval crosses the one line statistical significance that stuff there is not a single mention of p-value uh, statistical significance or a confidence interval in the whole paper right this is this is crucial to understand okay what did they do instead they yeah, used i should what say, is say actually that, that's
1: not bad that's probably no, I, a good thing. I love thing. it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm super pro, but we have to understand how to interpret it. The 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 benefit comes from the interpretation, not you know uh, yep. what it was. Um, so they they use instead uh, credible intervals and Bayesian statistics, which is uh, uh, well, I'm I'm going to trigger some people, and I'm not a statistician. My sense is that it's more efficient in its use of information to reach conclusion. Um, so, and, and what so
1: I, I would, yeah. I would argue, you tell me if you think this is wrong, it is more nuanced because effectively we have a problem, which is that ultimately we're trying to get to a, uh, a binary result in a world of nuance, right? You want to right. figure out whether this is a drug you should or shouldn't prescribe. Right. right. And so you can do that with a frequentist statistics and you can say, well, this result, you know. Not only suggests an effect, but it was significant, therefore, we should prescribe it or something like that. Yep. Um, in the case of the Bayesian statistics, you have uh, a an ability to say, well, how strong an effect did you see without right. imposing that threshold up front?
0: yep, yep. so so in the um so this trial, one of their sort of stylistic hallmarks in all the papers they publish, is to publish these beautiful sort of Bayesian uh, bell curves, uh, sort of, and, and how they intersect to 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 visually convey. Uh, so, in the, if they had a paper early on on hydroxychloroquine and, and uh, lepinavir, maybe I didn't say that right. Um, and the and the fluvoxamine paper has the same thing. The metformin paper has the same thing. The evermectin paper paper does not have that, even though it's the only paper that has exclusively Bayesian statistics. Uh, you have to go to the supplemental appendix, uh, download that go to a figure, I believe it is S2, uh, and you will see something that will be shocking compared to the conclusions that stated on, you know, on the first page, which is that um, when they took the, uh, what they call the intention to treat population, I think that's basically everybody, um, uh, they saw a uh, 79.4% probability of superiority of ivermectin over placebo, even with all of the caveats we, we discussed. Um, in the modified intention-to-treat uh, population, which I think is, um, if let's say you you get added to the evermectin group, right? But you have an event on the first day, right? They kind of know that that has nothing to do with your 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 your, your, your treatment. So they 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 take out some patients that weren't really treated. Uh, that shows eighty-one point four percent possibility probability of superiority uh of ivermectin over uh
1: so let me understand what you're saying you're saying there are some things that you can spot along the way are not informative right yeah
0: um, so some patients basically are having their event way too close to when they started taking to 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 for the event to be attributable to what they were taking
1: okay and so if you clean that up you get above 80 percent likelihood of superiority of ivermectin over placebo yeah,
0: and then we have to get to the even given all of the
1: Even given all of the structure even, that shouldn't yeah. be there with people being potentially recruited at different times.
0: We okay. must say, though, that the superiority doesn't say how much superiority, right? It could be a little superiority. It could be a lot of superiority. They don't get into that in that particular analysis. Right. It's just but that if, the event rate is lower, right? Okay. There's, there's, yeah.
1: But even so, you know, those of us who have been tracking the ivermectin story know this argument well right? The fact is you have evidence of superiority and unusual for this drug. You have an extremely low risk that is extremely well understood because of the long period of time over which this drug has been prescribed and the large number of people to whom it's been given.
0: I I should mention, right, that we should expect the results that we see to be fairly, uh, the difference we see to be fairly uh, narrow because of all the things that we described. If we did not see the, the difference being narrow, um, we we would lose everything we know about ivermectin. So, so, so we know that they gave the drug, uh, I believe the median uh, time was five days after symptoms. Uh, so half the patients were more, half the patients were less. And there's some question around that number I don't want to get into because we're going to be talking another, this is another 20 minute conversation. But um, we know that when you take that kind of population, there's, there's quite likely an additional day of delay between they actually put, actually got the drug. If we if we put it on the sort of the dose response the timing, uh, sorry, the timing response curve that we know about early treatments, we expect about a forty percent uh, improvement. Right. So when we have certain circumstances, we expect the result. to, You know, the seventeen percent that uh, Mills quoted is not shocking to anybody. It's like when you know, you know, three or four factors that went into those results, that's what you would predict.
1: So <laughs> I, I hope someday the full story of what took place with early treatment, especially ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and covid is sorted out by a team with resources to really dig and access to information after the um, the disincentive for honesty has dissipated. I hope we ultimately get the full story because what this sounds like to me is the deck was stacked by the house and they still lost, right? If you'd look yeah. at what they actually discovered, the point is there were all kinds of reasons that should have dampened the effect of Ivermectin to the point of being useless. And yet they still saw an effect. And this isn't the first time we've seen that, Right.
0: One thing that's on my mind, I want to make sure I I cover is the 681 number. Right, Um, this number was uh, determined uh, based on the background rate of events, like uh, based on their primary endpoint um, in in the period at the time, in the in the the region at the time. Um, But on that background, they were they were what they were tuning in to do was to spot a 37 and a half. Percent effect, right? So you, you, you. You're, this is what you're sort of assuming. If it's less than that, you have, you know, you, you have statistical power issues. With eighty percent power, um, that's what they. So when they come out and say basically no effect whatsoever, no indication, whatever, whatever no. what you, what you tuned your study to do is find with eighty percent statistical power, a thirty-seven and a half percent. So if you have a drug that is thirty-seven and a half percent. Effective, you expect four out of five times, if I understand the notion of statistical power correctly, to to catch it, to find it. That's that's what they that's what they that's what they did. In fact, they were kind of criticized in an open peer review about that size. They're like, this is you you you're aiming to to find too too big an effect, too uh, you know too low the power. Why aren't you like you know ramping it up a little bit? Um, and you know the the author sort of uh, the, the principal investigator. You know, his response was kind of dismissive to those comments from the invited reviewers. Um, But that's what they were. That's what if we if we strictly interpret what they found, that's what they they did not find a thirty-seven and a half percent effect in a trial that had eighty percent statistical power.
1: Right. That's that's what happened. That's what happened. And just it, so it, essentially what you're talking about is a Bayesian version of what typically happens with a frequentist where they find an effect and it doesn't reach significance and they report that right. there was no effect. We've seen that before in in ivermectin as, as elsewhere. But the point is, in, in this case, it's in a different language because it's Bayesian statistics and not frequentist, but it's the same problem. We can see if we look at what they actually found that in spite of many biases, all of which go in one direction, they did find an effect, a notable one. And yep. when you compare this, I mean, let's not lose track of what we're actually trying to discover. Is this drug worth giving to people uh, who have COVID, right? right? Now, if the answer to that question was yes, then you would likely do what we've seen done all over the world, we, what we've seen done in India, what we've seen done in Mexico, where basically people are given access to this very safe drug very early, in many cases, even before they've had a positive test, right? And so the point is this study looks at them, yeah, it's not the latest administration of uh, ivermectin that we've seen, but nonetheless, these are people who are deeply into disease. These aren't people who, at the first hint of disease, have been given this drug and are given it with uh, a meal that has fat in it to facilitate its getting into the bloodstream, right? And we have these methodological issues where uh, it appears that sicker people are likely to have ended up in the placebo arm. I mean, in the in the ivermectin arm, and healthier people were liable to end up in the placebo arm all of these things go in the same direction and yet we still see a notable effect that even the author the primary author of the study says he believes indicates the drug works and that if they had added more people to the trial that it would have passed their statistical test too right
0: now in the article and i'll leave it up to you if you want to go into that there's i discussed two more factors that would have dampened the effects um one is that the high dosing as described was not actually high enough uh we can go into that and the other one was the background use of ivermectin in brazil at the time um yeah these are
1: tremendously important we should we should (laughs) talk about them
0: okay so um Let's go into the dosing. So remember what they had done with the low dose where they had put the, uh, this arbitrary limit at 60 kilograms. I I have enough, I have not found any literature anywhere that describes a weight limit for ivermectin for any, for treatment of anything. If you go to the NIH website and look for stranguloidus or whatever, it says go scale it by, scale it by your weight, full stop. There's no like until, um, so they had the sixty kilogram limit. Limit when they when they moved it up, moved up the dose. They they changed it to a ninety kilogram limit, right? Um, ninety kilogram limit um, based on the average height of Brazilian men, as as I found. Some reports say one seventy one. some reports say one seventy three. That means that they're they they're, they're uh, given that. By the way, the trial had half low BMI patients under thirty. That's not low, but anyway, uh, and half hot. Uh, this, this is high. Half more than very 10, high. Yeah. Um, now, th- around 30 BMI, around 174 height is 90 kilograms, right? 91 kilograms to be precise. So it's, it's um, almost half the men in the trial, um, in the high dose trial, would have had their dose start slipping under this 400 uh, MCG per kg. And about a th- I'm I'm assuming about a third of the women uh, because you know their 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 BMI is higher for lower for lower weights so they would that would not have caught them at that level but uh, later um, and 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 this this is that this pernicious effect where high BMI is high risk right so the higher your risk the lower your dose this is weird like and and, and I, what I, what frustrates me with this is. You want to answer the question for once and for all, right? This is how the, the, the trial is heralded. Like, why do stuff like this? Why? I, there, there's no clinical explanation I, from what I've heard from the author's camp, from people informally. Um, there, there's no real reason for this. Why?
1: Right. It, why? It, 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 it's, it's unthinkable. Right, and one can speculate, but there's no justification for it, but if you were looking for a way to underpower a trial that was somewhat subtle that didn't show up in the oh, well, what dose did they use, right? If your first question is, "Well yeah, I've seen these under un- underpowered trials before, what dose did they use right yeah. and that threshold will be missed by many people, maybe many journalists. It has no justification. And the point is because COVID is – or the severity of COVID is so significantly correlated to BMI, then the point is this is a a critical failure. This is a critical failure. The people who are likely to get sickest are the most underdosed. Right?
0: yeah I, I I can't I can't explain it there's no uh, again there's no medical justification that I've seen it it just makes
1: no sense and in fact um, there, there's something there's some issue I can't quite describe I mean if you think about comparing it to placebo right the point is the placebo is flat and the degree of underdosing goes up and up the heavier you are and the more vulnerable to covid you are uh, there's it's just, uh, uh, it's, it's an unthinkable failure. And the thing is, okay, maybe they've got a great reason for that. Let's hear it.
0: Yep. No, I mean, there's just not, there's not, there's not the literature there. I think that one is, is one, when I had a chance to ask a question of one of the authors of the paper, this is the one I asked, and I got told to, uh, you know, follow the process and be professional. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, um, there was another issue you wanted to to cover.
0: Yep. so the other issue was that uh, there was, we know uh background use of ivermectin in the population in, in Brazil and in the particular region uh, of Minas Gerais, the the, 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 the the region of Brazil and, and Belo Horizonte, the, the city. Um, so we know there was a background use of ivermectin, why? Uh, first of all, uh, this, this might sound surprising to people, it was the official government recommended treatment. <sighs> wow so uh the 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 now this was being fought by the sort of the medical establishment so so the government went ahead and and, uh, promote promoted this thing called kit covid which had i believe hydroxychloroquine ivermectin azithromycin a few other things maybe some vitamins um and the best i could find is that 25 percent of the population used them at some point um but it was being fought hard so just to give you a sense uh a brazilian investigator we, we both know that's looking into these trials when i asked him was this like trump he's like no no, no it was much worse so <laughs> just to understand the severity of the hatred um that the establishment had for uh, bolsonaro who who was promoting this 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 treatment um and, and yeah i mean this is the tragedy of this of this of this molecule right it's been uh, sort of politicized to to hell and back um anyway so so um there was availability over the counter. First of all, of the of the medicine, it was being promoted by the government as a, as part of a kit. Um, was it so, you free? Know, we would expect. Sorry. Was it free? I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the kit was promoted. You'd expect, but I don't. I don't know.
1: Um, that would be that would be worth knowing because obviously it changes the incentive of somebody to join the trial
0: right i i believe the um the over-the-counter ivermectin in brazil was like five bucks and five bucks for us is not five bucks for brazil but it's it's not going to be a you know the number is like you know it's it's not a hundred um you know you can scale it, it could be tw- the effect of 20 bucks or whatever right uh in, in uh, for a le- low-income brazilian household um but that number is still you know if you're sick <laughs> you think this will help you you would you would probably find it um Anyway, so th- we also know from local press that was not friendly to Evermectin uh, that in the particular state of ministeries around the period of the study, especially around that sort of March, April, um, uh, time, time, frame, uh, use of Evermectin had increased nine times over the background, nine times. Um, so significant use I've seen, I've actually seen myself, I've seen numbers that indicate from 2019 the raises is more like 20 times i i don't have i'm not at liberty to share them because they're proprietary numbers from a company that uh, gathers them from pharmacies but take whichever number you like 920 what does it matter <laughs> a lot um, so when you
1: say over background, you mean over the rate that people are using it for parasites?
0: For parasites, yeah. Which was which was minimal. It wasn't like I mean I mean if you see a graph and there's the 20, 20 times difference, you, the, the 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 low number will, will seem low, but um, yeah. So it was you know a big big difference in in the use. Um, so we know there was background use. I mean, uh, you know, what? How else do we explain these numbers? And and again, the the the, the, the local publication that said nine times was all in the same. In the same piece says there's concerns about safety, et cetera, et cetera, which is the usual talking points. So these are not people who are promoting ivermectin; They're worried that it's nine times, right? Um, so it, when the original results came out in August, right, the sort of the one slide sort of presentation, uh, they mentioned the exclusion criteria and they did not mention uh, checking if people were taking ivermectin when they were ad- added to the trial. Uh, and this is bad because placebo group and treatment group might have a background. Some of them might be taking ivermectin, might not know. Um, the investigators did not say anything at the time. This was a key criticism throughout, you know, the drumbeat was like, but you didn't put in the exclusion criteria, obvious. When the paper came out, you know, the first thing I did, <laughs> I go to the, to the paper, where it says exclusion criteria, no mention of ivermectin it says like, go here for more. I go there for more, no exclusion for ivermectin. I'm like, Oh wow, they still haven't fixed. It. it turns out there is a single sentence in the description, in the discussion, sorry, of the of the papers, like some some in a, some other p- place, which you don't put exclusion criteria in. By the way, this is not normal. Um, that says we screened extensively for use of ivermectin for COVID, right? And they, when the investigator, whenever he says he says for COVID, and I'll, I'll go into why this is significant, um, and. Uh, you know, we, we removed those people. And he also mentioned in, in one of the emails, something that confused the hell out of me, which was like, if you were taking one of the drugs, you might be allocated another arm. What? <laughs> anyway, I I, I I choose to ignore that because it's the, the repercussions are so preposterous as to just, uh, you know, we already have enough to, to worry about. Um, so, but they they basically say that to to mean that, yes, we did exclude people. Now, why is that not... Uh, Wait a minute.
1: They yeah. said they might have allocated people to a different arm if they were taking a drug in the, exclude, in the exclusion criteria?
0: That's what... There's, there's so a full example mark in the, in the email from Mills to Kirsch.
1: For example, then, people who... You might be
0: comparing fluvoxamine and ivermectin right. to placebo.
1: Wow. That raises all kinds of questions.
0: I, 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 I it, it's so, it's so, such a big thing that I, I just, you know, I, 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 for some reason, I'm, uh, I, he might be, ref- there's some part I don't, I don't know. I, I just don't want to go into that. It's just, it's so, so, uh, I, I choose to take it as an offhand remark that might have been, um, uh, misunderstood or something. Uh, we have enough on our, our plate, but that, that it, it was weird. Um, but, but, but here's why it matters the way they articulated what they did. Right. Um, so when we look at the forms that the patients filled in when they were added to the trial, there's, no, you know, you go through the exclusion criteria. There's nothing about ivermectin. I think there's like a known hypersensitivity if you're like allergic or something. That's not what we're talking about. Um, but there is um, a, a, a appendix, which is like concomitant medication. So other drugs you're taking. Right. So if you're taking I don't know, blood pressure meds or like whatever it is, they want you to write it down. And under that, they have indication you know, why you're taking it. Um, so in theory, somebody would have written ivermectin, why COVID, right, not parasites, um, and you could have caught it. However, we're talking about a trial where the data collection were so compromised, uh, there's 331 patients, 23%, that they're not sure how long since symptoms started. They're missing they're missing for a, a good I believe it's a double digit percentage, the age of the patients. Right. Again, we're talk- and again, this, you can make this make sense, right? Early stage Italy, chaos, whatever, you're doing what you can, you get in rough ages from people. You're like you look at adults, right? Because it's like if you if you don't know the age, theoretically, how do you know they're adults? How do you know they can even be in the trial? Right. You you I, I can I can make that all of that make sense. But you can't convince me of that. And that they go, went and recorded all the medications you're taking and the precise reasons why you're taking them. And the, the, the investigator says, and by the way, there wasn't much
1: use in the area. Okay, so you didn't catch like a ton of people. So you may not much use in the area when we have other evidence that there was lots of use in the yeah. area. Um a weird phenomenon. It shouldn't matter from the point of view of the experiment, whether you were taking it for COVID or not. The question is, were you on the drug or weren't you? And so the exclusion criterion, even to the extent that it existed is bizarre from the point of view of actually testing ivermectin. Yeah. Um, so, and then there's a, yeah, it, it raises all kinds of questions. For me, it also raises a question. You know, we've talked about the unblinding of the trial from the point of view of the experimenter, which is dangerous. But it's also possible that the trial was unblinded either accidentally or not so accidentally from the point of view of the patients. Right. So, right. for example, um, you know, ivermectin has a flavor to it and a patient might get the Uh, sense that they are either on the drug or on the placebo from that. That could be an honest error. But my understanding from the paper is that they showed um, patients in the trial a video uh, to sort of orient them, right? A video that was presumably in Portuguese and discussed what the patient would experience. And yes, one could put together a perfectly well-constructed video that would leave things perfectly blinded. But if you were looking to wink at patients so that um, they would uh, self-treat if they found themselves in the placebo group because they had joined the study in hopes of getting a medication that many thought worked, um, that could also produce an effect. So in some sense, among the many things that we would need to see in order to know that this trial was valid is, well, can we see the video?
0: Right. Right. There's even one more thing that is harder to characterize statistically. It it, it dawned on me as I was kind of discussing uh, these results, which is that say you have a background population of people in Brazil using ivermectin. And let's say ivermectin works differentially in people, right? In some people it works, in some people it doesn't. Um, And so let's say that the people that it does work don't go to the hospital and the people that it doesn't work do go to the hospital, right, and and you are now looking at that. So even if you didn't catch it, even if you did exclude it, even if you did all the things, you are still looking at a subset of the population that could potentially be less suitable to that treatment, whatever. Um, but the fact that even if they did exclude, given the background use in the population, already you know changes the the, the meaning of these results, and again i don't know what precise statistical bias this this would be but it's one thing that continually frustrates me with the authors is that i think some of the things we have seen not everything but some of them could have been resolved with just more openness right being saying look we changed the dose because of this we changed it at that date we you know just be clear about what happened so we can move on and find the most the more important things there's this general refusal to engage to, you know, the, the, like an adversarial relationship. I can understand it even to a point. I know there's people on both sides of this conversation that are very emotional. They're very aggressive. that can get, you know, I mean, you've, you've definitely sensed that on the side of, you know, uh, the, the pro side, there's definitely people on the anti side that sense, you know, uh, a lot of sort of aggression, et cetera, et cetera, but we're doing science, right? We're not, we're not, we're supposed to try to walk that out and, do our work as, as best as we can. And there's this adversarial sort of relationship between they, 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 they mentioned constantly sort of advocacy groups and they even mentioned paramedical groups, which I don't understand what it is. It's paramedics forming groups, unclear. Um, but, um, you know, I, I understand the emotional sort of tension around all of this, but as scientists, we're supposed to try as much as we can to put that aside and, and just Come out with the results, come what may, right? Uh, re- reveal to the world as as clear as we can, and 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 the authors seem to be very aware of the context. Let's just let's just put it that way. Um, some of these things might have been clarified, but but we're not we're not getting signal.
1: Right to the point that Mills discusses the uh, the pressure, right? Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. No, it, was, it wasn't Mills, but Mills, after the, this person said it, he says, I completely agree with Frank, was, was Mills uh,
1: yeah. Mills said, that. okay. So, um...
0: so, there is one final bit to all of this that has to be mentioned, mm-hmm. um, which is that in these adaptive trials, there is this data and safety uh, monitoring board, committee, they come by different names, but what they do is because, perhaps as a safeguard, right? Because perhaps because all of this stuff is possible, um, there's supposed to be an independent committee that, um, as the name implies, looks at the data, uh, is primarily concerned about safety of the patients um, and, you know, it monitors sort of the trial to make certain decisions about where to stop things, it looks at the interim analyses, um, you know, all these decisions that we've seen about sort of extension of certain things or, or, or cut, cutting short. Uh, Normally, you would expect them to go through this committee, which is supposed to be independent. And indeed, in their papers, they say, you know, it's an independent committee. Okay, you look at who's in this committee, <laughs> and um, the chairman is a person called Christian Thorland. Uh, Christian Thorland um, is has published more than one hundred papers with Ed Mills, who is the principal investigator. Right? They're, they're academic sort of soulmates. Let's call it. Um, more than 100 papers. I mean, most people don't have 100 <laughs> papers. Um, They've published 100 papers together, um, and it, you, I dug in a little bit deeper. If you go to the Together Trial website on the Wayback Machine, and you go to the first version, um, you will see that um, Mills and Thorland are cited as co-lead investigators of the trial. So Thorland is on the side of you know the people designing the trial. If you look at where the email goes of saying, you know, where do I get information? It goes to a company called MTech Sciences. MTech Sciences is a startup, in fact, that was founded by <laughs> Edward Mills and Christian Thorland. My my guess is that MTech means Mills Thorland uh, Edward Christian, uh M-Tech, right? Um, but it might not. But the thing is, like, it is a startup. It was founded by them. It was acquired by Cytel, the company that does a statistical analysis uh, for the for this um study, um, another person was working at MTech and moved to SciTel as per the acquisition called Jonas Hackstrom. He's also in the data and, sa- and, and safety uh, monitoring committee. Um, and you're like, okay, so all of these people have very good reason to want uh, the trial to succeed and produce whatever results Mills you know, wants and are unblind- they're unblinded, right? So they see the data and they can make decisions on the data. Um, and they're not independent. Um, there's the, and and two more of the members of the committee have got you know 25 and nine papers written together with Mills. Less of a severe thing, but like when you already have uh, two big pieces, especially the chairman of the committee being um, linked like inextricably. I, I would say at this point, like they 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 started start together. They working at Saito, They're working at McMaster University. They've got 100 papers together. You know they're like this. They're they're, they're soulmates, right? There's no the the, the distinction is is, is thin. Um, now, okay, you might say, I don't know what you might say, this is not good, but in the open peer review that happened in August, two of the invited reviewers that made the other, the other that asked about the power of the study was also, were also asking, they, they, they made this note. They didn't get, catch all of the con- context, but th- just to see that this person works at Sytel, this person is at up, is up McMaster, same as Mills, this is not good. Um, and they said, look, this isn't right, and we are withholding our full approval of the protocol based on this one thing. Mills comes back and said, I will, I'm happy to take away his vote in the committee. So they removed the vote, but kept him as chairman, right? Um, and didn't do anything for hacks. So the reviewers on the basis of that, what they considered a lackluster response said, I'm sorry, um, this is not sufficient. Um, if they want a statistician, they can call him in the room to do to give him some advice and walk out he cannot be in the room when the discussion is happening uh, therefore we are withholding our full approval of the protocol on the basis of the lack of the independence of the data and safety monitoring committee now so we have just to put it in context right we have all of these irregularities happening in the trial the people who are involved in many of those decisions and who are supposed to be sort of the safeguard the the the, the people who can say like look there was those other people that had nothing to do with the authors that made a lot of those decisions. It's not the problem. of These people are very closely linked. So at that point, yeah, I, I don't know what's left of the, tri- the trial and what we can make of the results because there's, there's so much room for maneuver, right? It becomes a matter of trust to the investigators. And the whole reason we're doing RCTs in the first place
1: is to remove bias so what
0: are you know what's even happening
1: right you you are being too generous i can tell you on the basis of the underlying philosophy of science that the number of anomalies that we are unable We should be able from the description in the published paper to reconstruct what happened. To the extent that that is not possible, we should be able to request information that would allow us to fill in any gaps that we cannot ourselves um, fill in based on what is published. And to the extent that that is not provided, uh, it is fatal. Now, it's not to say that they couldn't then come back with information that would explain what these anomalies are in some satisfaction factory way, but um, it is almost impossible for me to imagine what the answers would be that would cover all of these anomalies. And to the extent that this was not uh, randomized or placebo-controlled in a valid way, that it may have been unblinded on the for researchers, I think we know less about what happened with patients a lot less, but that that possibility also exists, this is not evidence. Science depends on the work being done properly so that the conclusions that we derive are robust, right? This is um, the deductive part of the process. To the extent that the assumptions are not met, the deductive conclusion is not valid. And we can even see that in the fact that what is reported is not even consistent with what is presented within the data. So- yep. It is not a valid study if it can't recover from these things. And the refusal to try is conspicuous um, from the point of view of what sort of evidentiary value it has. I would say it has zero value until these things are clarified.
0: You know, and, and I, I mean, this is this is my sense as well, though, though it, I find it interesting that it, it it's actual results with plus the context match roughly what we'd expect. Um, mm-hmm. you know, given all of the 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 watering down, this is about you know what you'd 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 expect to see but um the, the to me the 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 real issue to me right there could be real issues for others. What animates me in this whole debate is that you know we can't have isolated demands for rigor, we can't have rigor for thee but not for me. This cannot be allowed to stand we can decide different rule sets. There's some play, right? What exactly are going to be the rules? We can discuss that. What we can't discuss is that, you know, Henry Carvalho, a retired, you know, uh, doctor in Argentina is being put through the ringer for uh, arguably doing a sloppy study. Um, but people who are very well-funded with, you know, a, a staff and statisticians and, and, you know, a PR agency and, and like the, the papers written, you know, being the best journals get a different treatment. Sorry, like no. <laughs> right. No, this so, is where this is where I draw the line.
1: <laughs> yes, and let me let me point something out. Uh, you raise the Carvalho question. Um Carvalho did a very sloppy study. I do not believe there is any evidence that it was dishonest, but I will point out that I had thought the Carvalho study was an important piece of evidence. And when I asked for the data and did not get it. And discovered over time that what had happened was a tally rather than the careful collection of data that would have immunized the study from various kinds of bias. There was an informal tally that was kept um, that suggested a very powerful result. I went on to Dark Horse and I said, look, this has zero evidentiary weight. It doesn't mean they didn't see the effect that they say they saw, but it means that we cannot look at this as a carefully run study that indicates what the conclusions that we've been given are. So the point is, that is the right thing to do, is to look at a study that is compromised and say, because I can't reconstruct exactly what happened here, zero evidentiary weight, right? That is the right thing to do with at least the ivermectin arm of the TOGETHER trial. And I would argue, based on what uh, you've revealed here in passing with respect to the fluvoxamine arm, et cetera, that we have to wonder about the whole thing. Zero evidentiary value unless we can see that a study of robust methodology was correctly carried out and resulted in conclusions that match what's being presented. That would have to be the minimum, and we're nowhere near that. So uh, people should recognize the right thing to do, as it was with Curvaio is to say this is not evidence right scientific so as i've said many times on dark horse science is a very powerful process but it is fragile it depends on the philosophy of science being robust it depends on the absence of powerful financial and other incentives pushing people towards some conclusions it depends on the equal application of rigor as you point out all of these things have to be true in order for the evidence uh, to be useful to us. And this is so far from where we are with respect to ivermectin generally and this trial in specific that uh, one really has to uh, to wonder how we get ourselves out of here. Have we so corrupted our scientific structure that it is incapable of allowing us to see?
0: And, and, and of course, there is also the s- surrounding theater around this study, right? There are Not one, but three new cycles powered by the way in which the results were released. So on August 6th, I mean, I find this kind of shocking, honestly, the Evermectin arm is supposed to end on August 6th, the same day, (laughs) like literally, I mean, some data, the, the the speed is stunning, right? It's August 6th. They come out, you know, the the deck is, 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 is dated August 6th, um, with the results. Uh, Okay. Amazing, right? Great, um, and indeed for flutaxamine by August 23rd we've got the preprint, and you know uh, a couple of months later it, it appears in in, in, uh, in Lancet. For irakin, you know quiet, no preprints, no <laughs> data, nothing. Then um, a couple of weeks before its release. We get a wall street journal uh exclusive right um look and and people who had seen the study not you know not me not you not uh you know somebody who might know a little bit more about but it might be skeptical but people who were uh, you know uh helpful to the story that was being created um had seen the study and ha- were making comments and and then that wall street journal triggered you know its own little uh, you know uh, waves Um, And then two weeks later, again, uh, the the study gets released, New York Times headlines, you know, it doesn't work, blah, 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 blah. And of course, then it's matched with the calls that at some point we have to wonder, should we keep studying this thing? Is it is it is it worth it at this point? You know, we got so much evidence, so controver- so incontrovertible, right? What are we? Why are we even wasting research dollars on this question anymore? Like, you, so you 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 use that as a as a platform to sort of say, not only this evidence is final, but like stop collecting evidence as a whole. And 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 that's where again you start to wonder, and I, that doesn't have to be the authors, but it could be somebody who is working with the authors, or or even just taking what the authors are putting out and amplifying it um what's happening especially because when you actually see the data so my advice to people just on twitter and everywhere else when you see a study wait a couple of weeks seriously like i've made this mistake lots of us have yep. you have to control your first instinct to just um come out and, and make grand conclusions uh, about a study uh ask questions be see this is interesting whatever but like hold something back for at least a couple of weeks because once it gets ex- examined, and this is again on the pro and on the anti side, right? It doesn't have to be about specific side. This is about all studies. Um, you have to wait at least a couple of weeks to, to see what emerges because as there is the, the formal scientific process, these days, there's a collective intelligence on the other side that is also absorbing, cross-checking, contextualizing things and um, things emerge that you just like this, like, uh, again, the, the conclusions that we've, we're coming to for this trial are as, um, implausible as they are undeniable. It is just baffling.
1: All right, so the, um, I'm not sure exactly how to convey this. It is non-standard to emerge into public with the conclusions of a study that is not gonna be published for half a year. At the very least, people should be able to scrutinize a draft at that moment to get a sense for where the authors are, even if the thing is gonna take time to go through the pipeline to give us the conclusion, to sensationalize the conclusion, to delay our ability to scrutinize the work itself. If all of those things are true, the work better be pretty close to spotless, right? It should be exceedingly high quality work, not shoddy work, right? If you're gonna trumpet this in the Wall Street Journal, if you're going to gaslight us for more than half a year over the conclusions of this trial, before we get to see how it even worked, the trial better be incredibly high quality. Instead, what we have is, um, frankly, it's a mirror of the problem that we saw uh, with cold fusion, right? It's it's science by press release, by press conference, right? That's what this was. And You know, as with cold fusion, what actually emerged in the aftermath when we got to see uh, the details wasn't supportive of the sensational headline. So this is, in some sense, uh, a case of, you know, ivermectin and cold confusion, right? What we've got (laughs) is um, the purpose. Somebody's purpose here is about headlines and not about discovery. And the discovery here is, I would say, exceedingly low quality, right? This is not high quality science. It's certainly not worthy of the New England Journal of Medicine. Hard to imagine how the editors themselves didn't spot the numerous inconsistencies and problems, uh, let alone the peer reviewers. How did this go? You know, a, a. a process that had an extra six months to get this stuff right should be especially clear and good rather than especially opaque and full of obvious holes.
0: Yeah, the the authors indicated that the journal gave them trouble in, in publication, though they indicated as being exasperated that they didn't sort of make the obvious connection that maybe the journal was seeing something he didn't like. Um, But also there's there's an indication that the corresponding author changed in February, which is strange. Like, who is the who? What happened? What? What's going? You know, this is not common.
1: Not it is uncommon. And I would also point out, okay, if the journal gave them a hard time, presumably the things that the journal gave them a hard time about were fixed. Before it went to publication, that means that the many, many flaws, ambiguities, and dangers that are apparent in what they published are the things that got through, right? So yeah. the work was even more compromised than this, yeah. apparently.
0: You see most of the issues when you put Humpty Dumpty together, when you, when you, when you take them, the metformin paper, the fluvoxamine paper, and the ivermectin paper, and you, uh, you assemble them. Is is when the discontinuity is the paper the American paper itself, when read in isolation, there's still questions, there's still concerns. But you know, if you had nothing else, it would be hard to to challenge it. Definitely not at this level.
1: Yep. Um, which, which, I don't know. It's a fascinating condition. Let's just say that. Yeah. All right. Um, there's a lot in your article on this that we have not covered. I would certainly encourage people to look at it carefully. Um, We're no doubt going to get feedback. Maybe we'll discover that some of the issues that have been raised are less critical than we think. Maybe we will discover that there are issues that we didn't discuss that are important and should be explored. But at the very least, I um, would say it is beyond time for the authors of this study to hand over the information they have, so we can clarify what actually took place, and therefore, what, if any, evidentiary value exists in this study.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think as as um, we've, we've kind of said before, um, even now you can sort of hold a you know some level of uncertainty as to what happened and why, some sort of you know superposition of of, 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 of theories, of hypotheses, <laughs> um, but. I, I, I think what happens with the data is the razor that separates these entwined hypotheses for, uh, for me. Uh,
1: what happened with the data and the lack of forthcomingness? No, no. What happens from now? Like what happens it, if, from if, this point? If,
0: if, if the authors are say, okay, no, you guys are wrong. You know, here it is. Um, you know, and here's how. Here's why these discontinuities appear. Um, you know that we can discuss like we could be wrong there's sure. always that chance we should we should I, I don't understand how i mean this is basic addition subtraction that i'm doing i'm not good doing statistics but there could be some let's say innocent errors that were misunderstood or whatever it is or uh, it could be something that like some kind of a confusion or whatever but if the data is not forthcoming i think we we have to note right that the again carvalho is a is a retired uh, doctor the people here the, the 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 sort of the roster of authors is, has an overrepresented group of professional clinical trial designers for big pharmaceutical companies. This is what they do. They don't mess up on studies by accident. It's, it's hard to believe. And, and I don't want to go heavy on the conflict of interest part, right? Um, people can definitely assume that I can't prove anything. What I can't prove is that these people are supposed to know how to run a perfect trial or well, nobody does. <laughs> uh,
1: let us also <laughs> right? recognize this is not Some college paper, right? This is a global pandemic and an important question about a medication that either does or does not save lives to the extent that you run a study. I don't care how expensive it is. I don't care how fancy it was. If it turned out that the method collapsed on you because of things maybe you couldn't foresee, you don't publish it. Yeah. Right. To the extent that they ran a shoddy study, even if it was well intended, even if it was the complexity that got them in the end, you don't publish the study as if it's evidence if it isn't. And if it is evidence, then you provide the data so that we can scrutinize it right. and uh, not have to guess where the bodies are based. Right, right right right
0: yeah so, some somebody who was i was uh, uh review i got his help reviewing a professor at a university in canada um
1: who re- reviewed
0: the paper with me uh just to sort of again i have sanity checked it with a lot of people right the, the reason of my, my confidence such as it is uh, is that I've, I've done that but one of uh the, these people said um, that, you know, the, the, word pharmakon in Greek, not, not pharma, <laughs> pharmacon, is a dual word, right? It's poison and cure at the same time. And I, and I know this is in modern Greek, there's still that duality in, in the word. Um, and, and the point is that, you know, with knowledge of how to cure comes knowledge of how to poison. So this is to me, the key question, right? Was the knowledge that the authors had, uh, used in, in a reverse fashion was this a chaotic situation because of the pandemic and maybe a a polishing airbrushing of things afterwards to make it look like nothing happened uh the
1: data will answer that question i think pretty pretty clearly well that's a um a fascinating point to end on because i i guess the way to say it is we are told randomized controlled trials are the gold standard um because of their power to uh reveal um subtle patterns but the knowledge of how to run a randomized controlled trial is also the knowledge of how to game a randomized controlled trial. And in an environment where there's as much uh, at stake as there is surrounding ivermectin, uh, with the number of anomalies we see, it is absolutely fair. And in fact, it is our obligation to wonder what happened here. All right. Well, Alexandros Marinos, uh, I want to thank you for doing this work. I know you have uh, a new baby and uh, you're pressed for time. And I, you know, this is not uh, your profession. So I really appreciate all of the work you put into sorting out what took place and writing it up in a way that uh, makes very difficult material accessible. And I want to thank you for joining me here and uh, discussing it. Um, it's yeah, been fascinating. I,
0: mean, I, I must say, um, thank you for having me. Hopefully, this will get us some answers, and that this work was not just me. I've tried to name several people that helped in that conversation. There's a lot of people that helped that I uh, I, I can't name, or I don't even know the names because there's, this emergent sort of uh, social media uh, ecosystem that generated you know a lot of leads, some of them dead ends, but. Um, the, the I feel like I'm sitting at the top of a of an elephant that was far far greater than myself. But um yeah.
1: Yeah, a tremendous number of people uh worked to to try to sort out what was going on and so yes, uh, I think it makes a a great deal of sense to to thank them uh for their hard work. Some of them have been working uh from early on in the pandemic collecting evidence. Some of them are anonymous I think because they are afraid of what happens um if they reveal themselves. Uh All right. Um, Anyway, it's been very interesting, and I look forward to seeing what, uh, what we learn from here on out. Thank you very much. All right. Let's see what happens. Be well, everyone.